Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Well, we embark on 2 Samuel chapter 7 today, which is another of those vitally important places in the Bible that could be called a canon within a canon or maybe a a Torah within a Torah. This is simultaneously a summary and a mountaintop vista. It's a pause to reflect upon how deeply meaningful and symbolic has been the long path to redemption that began in Egypt but now has led to Jerusalem. It's also a look ahead to the remainder of the journey. What a major milestone it is that David is now king. That the promised land is united and secure. That Jerusalem is the capital of God's earthly kingdom and that the ark is back among the people. Now one of the difficulties for me as as a teacher of God's word is that after exploring all those lofty heights of the first five books of Torah that set down all the principles that humankind is to live by and after our discovering of the ideal standard that the Lord has ordained for those who call themselves His that's presented to us in the Law of Moses, we have for a long time now dealt with the real-life historical aspects of Israel's development. We have read of battles, of failed leaders and good ones, the ebb and flow of territorial control, the steady diminishing of the priesthood, and so on. It's as if we've been walking through a, through a heavily wooded wilderness navigating through a maze of details and circumstances and struggling to keep our bearings. But suddenly we emerge into a clearing atop a hill and now we're given a panoramic view. A view of where we've come from. Some reassurance that the direction that we have traveled has been correct. We're on course. We also see that much lay ahead and what we're going to experience along the way will take continuing endurance but the sight, the end is in sight, the outcome is certain because God has said that He'll see to it that if we remain faithful to Him He will be our compass. Now the backdrop for this overview it's David's hope to build a temple for the Lord and then the Lord's rejection of David's plans. But we must understand that this chapter is not about temple history per se, but about examining a critical point whereby the manifestation of the divine purpose, deeper and fuller than we've seen it up to now, is finally revealed. And I hope that after our preparation for this chapter last week that you you made the effort to carefully read it ahead of time. It's going to have been to your advantage. So open your Bibles to second chapter uh, uh, second Samuel chapter seven. Second Samuel chapter seven. 
We're going to read it all. After the king had been living in his palace a while, and Adonai had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Natan the prophet, Here, I'm living in a cedar wood palace, but the ark of God is kept in a tent. And Natan said to the king, Go, do everything that's in your heart, for Adonai is with you. But that same night, the word of Adonai came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David that this is what Adonai says. You are going to build me a house to live in? Since the day I brought the people of Israel out of Egypt until today, I've never lived in a house. Rather, I traveled in a tent and a tabernacle. Everywhere I traveled with all the people of Israel did I ever speak a word to any of the tribes of Israel whom I ordered to shepherd my people Israel, asking... Why haven't you built me a cedar wood house? Therefore say this to my servant David, that this is what Adonai Sevaot says, I took you from the sheep yards, from following the sheep, to make you chief over my people, over Israel. I have been with you wherever you went. I have destroyed all your enemies ahead of you, and I am making your reputation great, like the reputations of the greatest people on earth. I will assign a place to my people, Israel. I will plant them there so that they can live in their own place without being disturbed anymore. The wicked will no longer oppress them as they did at the beginning and as they did from the time I ordered judges to be over my people, Israel. Instead, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Moreover, Adonai tells you that Adonai will make you a house When your days come to an end and you sleep with your ancestors, I will establish one of your descendants to succeed you, one of your own flesh and blood, and I will set up his rulership. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish his royal throne forever. I will be a father for him. He will be a son for me. If he does something wrong, I will punish him with a rod and blows, just as everyone gets punished. Nevertheless, my grace will not leave him, as I took it away from Saul, who I removed from before you. Thus your house and your kingdom will be made secure forever before you. Your throne will be set up forever. Natan told David of all these words and described this entire vision. And then David went in and sat before Adonai and said, Who am I? Adonai Elohim, what is my family that caused you to bring me this far? Yet in your view, Adonai Elohim, even this is too small of a thing. So you have even said that your servant's dynasty will continue on into the distant future. This is indeed a teaching for a man, Adonai Elohim. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant intimately, Adonai Elohim. It is for the sake of your word and in accordance with your own heart that you have done all this greatness and revealed it to your servant. Therefore, you are great, Adonai, God. There is none like you. There is no God beside you. Everything we have heard confirms that. Who could be compared with your people, 
with Israel. What other nation on earth did God set out to redeem and make into a people for Himself? You made yourself a reputation by doing for your land things that even for you are great and terrifying for the sake of your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and from other nations and from their gods. You set up for your people, you set up your people for yourself as your people forever. And you, Adonai, became their God. So now, Adonai, God, establish forever the word you have spoken to your servant in his house. Do what you have promised. May your name be magnified forever so that it will be said, Adonai Sefaot is God over Israel and the dynasty of your servant David will be set up in your presence. You, Adonai Sefaot, God of Israel, have disclosed to your servant, I will build you a house. This is why your servant has the courage to pray this prayer to you. Now, Adonai Elohim, you alone are God. Your words are truth. You have made this wonderful promise to your servant. So may it please you to bless the family of your servant and thereby cause it to continue forever in your presence. For you, Adonai Elohim, have said it. May your servant's family be blessed forever by your blessing. It's impossible not to see the messianic overtones in this chapter. The Jewish sages immediately recognized it, as did the earliest Gentile scholars, uh, Gentile Christian scholars. And this is at least one of the reasons why modern academic Bible scholars, who mostly adhere to the literary critical method of Bible, Bible exposition, claim that this chapter is a late and rather dishonest insertion into the Samuel scroll that probably occurred after the Jews came home from the Babylonian exile some 600 years after David's day. Now the argument is that only many centuries later, when many other events had come to pass, and when those who wanted the Davidic era to be, to be viewed in retrospect in a certain positive light, did some anonymous editor add this chapter to achieve his agenda? And why do they think that? Because they generally do not believe in divine prophecy or in spirituality. Therefore, whatever appearance of messianic fulfillment and future expectations that exists in this chapter can only have been added after the fact with the intent that later generations would be fooled into thinking that this was real. I know I covered this last week, but it's so critical for us to understand that the teaching in modern seminaries, not all seminaries of course, but certainly the majority, is largely based on this skeptical mindset that emerged after the European Enlightenment of the 18th century. It's been in vogue ever since then to question the authenticity of much of the Bible, especially the Old Testament. And any Bible teacher or church official who doesn't is looked upon with suspicion as a relic and out of touch with modern intellectualism. 
At the same time, we have to also understand that most of the books of the Bible were written in retrospect and by editors who compiled documents and traditions to form a coherent history. The writer or the writers of the Samuel Scroll weren't necessarily present during the events that occurred during that time. And under divine inspiration, they wrote and ordered the passages into what we see today. They also wrote within the cultural norms and methods of their time. These were, after all, ancient Hebrew writers. So precise chronologies weren't important. Genealogies didn't reflect precision and they weren't exhaustive in the way that we think of it today in Western society. Thus, chapter 7 isn't a logical or even chronological continuation of chapter 6, nor did it historically occur before chapter 8. Why exactly the writers of Samuel determined that this was the point to insert this chapter, we don't know. But it doesn't matter. Because I'm not sure at what point within Samuel would have been any better. Now we should notice an interesting parallel between the characteristics of David's reign and the transition from the days of the end times on into the millennial kingdom. Of course, this is still future to us. Now, I have identified seven of the most notable parallels here. First, in David's time and in the end times, Judah and Israel are reunited after having been divided and separated for a long time. Second, the Ark of the Covenant is once again present and it rests in Jerusalem. Third, David's era and the Millennial Kingdom are both described as times of rest for God's people. Fourth, Jerusalem and the Promised Land are secure from its enemies. Fifth, there is a time of general peace. And six, God's anointed is on the throne, a real earthly throne. And seventh, a palace for God's anointed king has been built largely, interestingly, by the contributions of foreigners, non-Hebrews. Now verse 1 opens with David contemplating the amazing events of his life and how drastically Things have changed since he was a simple shepherd in the fields of Bethlehem. Now he wears the crown of a king. He lives in a lavish palace made of cedar wood. Now, since we know that his palace was not built until at least halfway through his reign, we also know that when this urge to build a temple rose up within him, it was well after the time that the Ark of the Covenant had been brought back into the city of David, as we studied in chapter 6. We find David expressing this longing to build a temple to his prophet Nathan. A longing that is accompanied with a certain measure of personal unease, maybe even bordering on guilt. And the stated reason is that David lives in a beautiful palace 
while the Lord's ark resides in a mere tent. What is it that would cause David to think that this was the proper time to build God a temple since it had not been attempted before now? The rabbis say that David probably thought he was fulfilling the promise of Deuteronomy 12, verses 10 and 11. Listen to those. Don't turn there. Just listen to those uh, two verses. Deuteronomy 12, 10 and 11. But when you cross the Jordan and live in the land, Adonai your God is having you inherit, and he gives you rest from all your surrounding enemies so that you are living in safety, then you will bring all that I'm ordering you to the place Adonai your God chooses to have his name live. Your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, the offering from your hand, all of your best possessions that you dedicate to Adonai. It probably rightly seemed to David that Israel was finally living in relative rest from their surrounding enemies as compared to the turmoil and constantly present dangers of the last several hundred years. And it seemed as though Yerushalayim must be the place where God had chosen His name to live. However, There is certainly no commandment to build God a beautiful temple that's implicit in these verses of Deuteronomy. That said, the entire known world built their gods fabulous temples. So David naturally assumed that's what he would build as the place where Adonai, your God, chooses to have his name live. We don't really know who this Natan, Nathan, is. He's not previously mentioned and he just appears in the texts. I don't mean miraculously, it's just that we're not given any information about him. That David refers to his palace as a cedar wood palace is because a palace paneled with cedar wood was considered opulent. Further, the use of strong cedar logs permitted a little different kind of roof construction that allowed for for much larger interior rooms because uh, without the need for for as many columns or as many load-bearing walls to hold up larger roof spans. Construction of all buildings in that era used stone. So it's not that we have a palace made for David purely out of wood. Rather, it's that cedar wood was used to beautify and to facilitate some otherwise impossible architecture. So relative to David's day, indeed his palace was top of the line. And by the way, the very recent archaeological discovery of his palace in the city of David bears this out. Now verse 2 speaks of the ark resting in a tent. Now your Bible version might say dwelling in curtains. The Hebrew word being translated is Yeriyah. And between the two interpretations, curtains is the better. Tents in that day were usually lengths of 
animal skins or cloth assembled and then layered over a wooden framework. Yet since the common word for tent is oel, and it was used in chapter 6 to explain where the ark was placed, then no doubt Yeri'ah, curtains, is intended to tell us that the tent had a space divided off by curtains and then the ark was placed in it. Thus a picture emerges that while this tent was certainly not on par with the wilderness tabernacle and it is never called a tabernacle, a mishkan in the original Hebrew, that it was also no ordinary shepherd's tent, we can be certain. It was nicely built. It had at least one separated compartment to serve the same purpose as the Holy of Holies. Now, there have been many scholarly attempts and arguments about the nature of this tent and whether it really ought to be considered as the first temple since there was no indication that it was ever built to be portable. Now, the reason for this concern is because we're told, you see, that the millennial temple will be the third temple. So, if David's tent is the first, then Solomon's was the second. Therefore, Herod's was the third, and therefore, there is no actual future temple to come. Rather, the future future temple, uh, temple is purely spiritual in nature. And the mention of it is somewhat allegorical. I'm not going to get into the lengthy subject of the third temple today. But I can state to you confidently, there will be another temple. And it will be quite literal and real. Here's the thing that can help us to understand the nature of the tent that David built for the ark and how we ought to consider it. There is actually a much earlier example in the Bible of regularly meeting God in a tent that was not the wilderness tabernacle. And it was divinely authorized and thus completely satisfactory to Yehovah. So David really wasn't even doing something that groundbreaking by putting the ark into a tent. And we find that story in Exodus chapter 33. So turn there in your Bibles now, please. Exodus chapter 33. We're just going to read four brief verses. Exodus chapter 33. Page 98 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. And we're just going to read verses 7 through 11. Exodus 33, 7-11 Moses would take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far away from the camp. He called it the tent of meeting. Everyone who wanted to consult Adonai would go out to the tent of meeting outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would get up and stand, each man at his tent door, and look at Moses until he had gone into the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the column of cloud would descend and station itself at the entrance to the tent. And Adonai would speak with Moses. 
When all the people saw the column of clouds stationed at the entrance to the tent, they would get up and prostrate themselves, each man at his tent door. Adonai would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Then he would return to the camp, but the young man who was his assistant, Joshua the son of Nun, never left the inside of the tent. Interesting. This tent is not the wilderness tabernacle. In fact, this this instruction that we just read to set up this special tent of meeting was given before the wilderness tabernacle was built. For timing purposes, this story is told in the context of the golden calf incident. Naturally, the Hebrew word used to describe this tent of meeting is oel, a common tent. We even see that Joshua was allowed inside of it. Once the tabernacle was built and the priesthood was presiding over it, only the priests could go inside the tent. Moses went into this tent of Exodus 33 when the fire cloud would descend upon it, to the front of it, indicating that God wished to speak with Moses. In fact, there wasn't even an ark in the tent. Notice the location of Moses' tent. It was apart from the people. David's tent was located inside of his own personal walled complex, the city of David. So it too was apart from the people. Therefore, let's put to rest any theological notion that David's tent was actually intended or thought of as a temple, the first temple. Therefore, Solomon's temple would be the first, Herod's the second, and the third temple is yet to come. David's tent was similar in nature to Moses' tent. So David tells... Natan of his plan to build a a temple for Yehovah and um, Natan responds to David go David do everything that's in your heart for Adonai is with you then in verses 4 through 16 the Lord chastises Natan for assuming that building this temple must have been divinely directed Wow. I could there's probably a couple of sermons trapped inside these verses. But I think I'll restrain myself and just try to give you the highlights. First, notice something about prophets in general. Prophets are only infallible when they reveal a truth that has been given directly to them by God. A prophet is no more a great thinker or a man of profound theological understanding or supremely pious or incapable of sin than any other man. For Nathan to assume that because building a temple sounded like a really great religious thing to do, and therefore God would want it done, that is the height of folly. A prophet is merely an ordinary man that the Lord has chosen to bring his perfect oracle to God's people, or in this case, to God's anointed king. 
any other statements by a prophet, his personal beliefs, his personal thoughts are subject to error. Second is that Nathan's statement that David ought to do what seems right in his heart. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times from believers. If they feel it in their heart, then that is the signal that it must be from the Lord. Really? The Scriptures tell us exactly the opposite. Jeremiah 17, 7-10 Blessed is the man who trusts Adonai. Adonai will be his security. He will be like a tree planted near water. It spreads out its roots by the river. It does not notice when heat comes. Its foliage is luxuriant. It's not anxious in a year of drought, but keeps on yielding fruit. The heart is more deceitful than anything else. Mortally sick. Who can fathom it? I, Adonai, search the heart. I test inner motivations in order to give to everyone what his actions and conduct deserve. Every, even the man who trusts the Lord cannot rely on his own heart. Or as it is further expanded upon here in Jeremiah, he cannot trust his own inner motivations. So here is your sermonette. Stop trusting your heart. Don't confuse God's will with what you feel or think in your heart. And remember, in all biblical eras, Old Testament, New Testament, the heart was not indicative of emotions. It was referring to the intellect, the mind, because the ancients thought that the heart organ was where thinking took place. Nathan thought of David as a godly man, even God's appointed king. So if David thought of something that sounds so wonderfully religious, it must be from God. Nathan thought that since he was a God's he was God's anointed prophet, the king's own personal prophet and closest advisor, that his own elevated status meant that he must have been anointed with elevated wisdom and judgment. He was wrong. And somewhat impulsively, he gave King David wrong advice. So do me a favor. Don't ever come and tell me about something you've decided you're going to do because it's from your heart. Therefore, it has to be from God. This is such common Christianese. And it really needs to be removed from our vocabulary and our thought processes. Nothing could be a worse benchmark for deciding to do or not to do something in the name of God than what your heart tells you. Pastors, priests, and Bible teachers are not less fallible than any other follower of Messiah. Therefore, I don't want to know 
if you are acting solely on what your heart tells you because you're going to be offended when I question your motives and I'm skeptical that the Lord actually told you anything. As with David, it's far more likely that this urging is just something that sounds good, feels comfortable, pleases you. And I have no intention of being a Nathan that validates it unless I get a direct from word from God about it. And since I'm not a prophet, I can't imagine that I ever would. Let's delve into the details of what the Lord told Nathan. We're informed that Jehovah wasted no time in intervening to set him straight. It was the night of the same day that Nathan validated David's misguided intentions that the Lord came to Nathan. Now please note that is usually but not always the case. God's prophet is awake and conscious. It talks about a vision. But this is not a dream that Nathan experienced. In a nutshell, the Lord says to go tell David he never asked for a house to dwell in. In fact, from the day the Lord decided to rescue his people from Egypt until now, a period of almost five centuries, he's traveled with his people in a tent and a tabernacle. The key word here is traveled. Okay. Notice something that can fly right by us. The Lord says He traveled with His people in both a tent and a tabernacle. An O.L. and a Mishkan. These are not synonymous terms, are they? We read earlier about Moses' Oel, where God met with Moses before the Mishkan was built. The reason these words are spoken to Nathan in this way is because David was currently using a tent, an Oel, like Moses did for a time, as a place of meeting where he met with God and God has no need for anything else. But David sure thinks he does. And then in verse 7, the Lord says that He has at no time issued any instruction to any Israelite who shepherds over God's people to have a cedar wood house built for Him. See, here's the thing. There is no doubt that David, Nathan, probably most of the Israelites had a pretty distorted view of God and of His attributes and particularly where he lived. We know from all of our Torah class studies that by David's time, Israel looked as much like a typical Middle Eastern society as any of the other nations that surrounded it. We know that Israel had precious little knowledge of the Torah and the law because they made all sorts of ritual protocol mistakes. And they followed their traditions and assumptions instead. Their conception of Yehovah was quite in line with the conception that the Gentile tribes and nations of the rest of the world had for their gods. And of course it was incorrect. 
The Gentile nations, pagans, build houses, temples, for their gods because their hearts, their intellect, told them that gods needed somewhere to dwell. I mean, goodness, you couldn't expect the gods and goddesses to live out in the hot sun or the rain. Food was brought to the gods because obviously gods needed to eat. All beings needed food. Idols of gods were carried around in elaborate boxes by priestly processions because how else could gods get from one place to another? They don't have any legs. David and his royal court had similar thoughts about Jehovah. Surely God needs a place to dwell on earth or how else can He come? And just as surely, it must be a place that is at least as expensive and elaborate as the one for the king, otherwise God would be offended. You know, we can chuckle a little bit. Maybe even feel a tinge of contempt towards these ancient people for harboring such primitive and superstitious thought, but let's just take a look around at some of the enormous churches and cathedrals that have been built for the sake of honoring God. These grand edifices that are typically called God's house and are seen as a place where the Lord shows up. They were built that way because well-intentioned believers thought that the more elaborate and expensive that these facilities were, the more appropriate and pleasing it would be to our Lord. Especially in days gone by, poor people gave so much money, and at times had it just simply taken from them, to build these monuments to religion that many had no money left to feed their families. Some folks today would not think to walk into a church if it was not richly decorated, richly built, and furnished, and contained all of the expected comforts and amenities. But in the divine reality presented to us right here in 2 Samuel 7, we receive the Father's attitude about such things. You are going to build me a house and probably ought to have had some incredulous laughter along with all this for emphasis. The Lord's will is not for us to take large sums of money and effort and build a magnificent building with it. Rather, that money and effort ought to be used to care for His people who have needs and to bring the good news to others who have not heard of it. Facilities to meet in are indeed needed. But they can be quite simple and efficient. God happily met with Moses in a tent. After all, if the enormous and costly buildings of wood and stone are supposedly dedicated to God, but they're not pleasing to God, then who are they pleasing? Just as the thought of building God a cedar wood temple was personally pleasing to David and to Nathan, it didn't impress Jehovah at all. Men thought that a temple 
was to serve a God and to confine a God. This is why verses 6 and 7, stay with me, this is why verses 6 and 7 speak about God traveling with Israel. The God of Israel cannot be confined. The God of Israel comes and goes by His own will and by His own means. The God of Israel dwells wherever He chooses and the choice has nothing to do with cost, size, mode of transportation or some king's pious intent. We find that the same thought is brought forward into the New Testament when the issue becomes not only what the Lord dwells in, but in whom. Listen to 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and 18. What agreement can there be between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will house myself in them. I will walk among you. I will be their God. They will be my people. Therefore, Adonai says, Go out from their midst and separate yourselves. Don't even touch what is unclean and then I myself will receive you. In fact, I'll be your father. You will be my sons and daughters, says Adonai, Sebaot. Boy, that's some pretty strong and unequivocal language here to express God's view of a temple versus man's typical distorted view of a temple or a house of God. Thus in 2 Samuel verses 7 and 8, or rather 2 Samuel 7 verse 8, the tables get turned. And the Lord says, look, let's get something straight. It's not you who can do anything for me, such as building a dwelling place. It is I who will do for you. It is I who took you from the shepherd's fields, David, and made you a king over my people. I've been with you wherever you went. Understand, God knows that David's chief concern is that God is always near to him. David wants to build the temple in Jerusalem so that it's guaranteed that God will always be there. That God will essentially be confined there. Again, this last verse especially goes back to the issue of God's traveling and presence. And traveling and presence goes back to the issue of God's characteristics and attributes that as of this time, where we're all confused with those false gods of Israel's neighbors. I have been with you wherever you went. Is the Lord saying that he always traveled around with David and yet he wasn't being hauled around in a fancy box by men nor even did his presence with David require the presence of the ark. Not even some kind of dwelling place. Thus, David needed to be reminded that all during the time that he was fleeing from Saul and when he fought the Philistines and others and defeated them, he certainly didn't have possession of the tabernacle then. 
nor had he set up a special tent to meet with God. And he obviously didn't have the Ark of the Covenant with him. Yet somehow, God was still there with David wherever David was. Newsflash. David, you don't need a temple in order for me to be with you. And brothers and sisters in the Lord, you don't need a church building or a synagogue for Him to be with you. He travels within you wherever you go. You are His portable temple, His tabernacle, His tent. And it pleases Him that it is so. He's only present within these grand edifices to religion that we build when you're there. And the idea that mankind could fashion with our own hands something glorious enough to appropriately house His glory is simply not attainable. It's more a monument to our own conceit. Verse 10 is the portal into some stunning messianic prophecy. And here's where we have to bring our reality of duality principle back into focus because what is being pronounced in these passages is not only literal, but it's also simultaneously symbolic. And even though the conditions that are being described are occurring at that moment in David's kingdom to some degree. These same conditions are going to occur again at a more complete level in the future when one of David's descendants is ruling. Let's look at these conditions one by one. It says God will assign a place for His people. That's already happened. The land David is controlling was assigned by God for his people first to Abraham as a future promise and then in actuality through Moses and then Joshua. But at a later time, what we call the end time, not only will the amount of land be expanded, but Israel will become the governmental seat of God's kingdom that will encompass the entire earth. Yehovah also promises in these passages that the wicked will no longer oppress Israel. Things were relatively peaceful right now for David. The Philistines were subdued. Other of Israel's enemies were quiet. That doesn't mean that there weren't skirmishes or that marauders didn't occasionally harass various Israelite tribes and clans, but it did mean there were no major wars underway and... Nothing envisioned. But at a later time in the era of Christ reigning from Jerusalem, the wicked absolutely will not oppress God's people. There'll be no need for forts and soldiers or weapons. It isn't only that there will come a time when Israel's military strength is sufficient to deter an enemy from attacking, like in David's day, it is that in the millennial kingdom era, 
Israel will have no enemies among the earth's nations. The Lord says that Israel will achieve its rest. Well, Israel already has received its rest in the sense of having received a place of its own based on the Abrahamic covenant. It has achieved its rest in that God's anointed king is ruling over them instead of an evil king or a foreign king. Israel has achieved its rest in that it is in a somewhat, although highly imperfect, harmonious state with God. But in later times, God Himself will rule over Israel. There will be no evil kings. In later times, with Messiah reigning, Israel will be in perfect harmony with God. Let's break off here and we'll pick up next week with even more prophetic pronouncements from chapter 7. Okay?